Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. Down Jamaica Way there's an ex-chief superintendent of the Met who once worked on a case that he's not quite prepared to let go of. Was Gareth part of a state hit by Russia? Was he assassinated by a hostile nation? Was he killed by a lover? Was it suicide? The retired officer believes advances in DNA profiling could finally solve the decade-old spy-in-the-bag riddle. His view as one of the most experienced detectives in the history of the Met ten years on, why not take another look? He says it's time to look again at the death of codebreaker Gareth Williams, whose body was found in a North Face holdall. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and the Times and the Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, the strange case of the spy in the bag. Is it time for a review? My name is David Collins. I'm the Northern Editor for the Sunday Times. David Collins has covered the story of the death of 31-year-old Gareth Williams right from the beginning. I'm an investigative reporter. I've been at the Sunday Times for six years and used to be a member of the Insight team. And now I'm based in Manchester. David, tell me why we are all of a sudden talking once again about this case. How's it started? The reason why it does trigger something in people is because of the mysterious way that he died. You know, he was found in a holdall in his bathtub in his flat in Pimlico, a flat which was owned by MI6. And there was a feeling that nobody ever really got to the bottom of what happened. Gareth died in 2010. In 2012, you had an inquest into that death where the coroner found that on balance he was killed unlawfully and that there was somebody else with him when he died. And then a year later, Scotland Yard closed down the investigation saying that 
he was probably alone when he died. So you had a big clash between what the coroner said, what Scotland Yard said. So I think it's one of these mysteries that have endured. And for the first time ever, the person in charge of that investigation, Hamish Campbell, has spoken, taking into account modern science and the advances in forensics that have been made since Gareth died. It is a sensible option, he said, for the Met to take a fresh look. How did you get to speak to Hamish Campbell? Did you just call him up on spec and say, Mr Campbell, maybe it's about time we talked about this? And how did he seem when you spoke to him? Tell me a bit about him. So Hamish was Detective Chief Superintendent in charge of the Met's Homicide and Serious Crime Command team when Gareth Williams was found, which effectively made him the Met's top detective who is involved directly in investigations. For the space of about six years when he was in that role, every big murder really was on his desk. Hamish is somebody that I've wanted to speak to for a long time about this case, his DCI, was Jackie Sieber. Jackie would report to Hamish, but Jackie is still in the police. Hamish, the only time he's ever spoken about this case, was a short statement in 2010, and he gave evidence at the inquest in 2012. Apart from that, we have never known really what the Met's thinking is around Gareth Williams and the evidence that was found. So essentially, you called him up and said, Hamish, maybe it's time you talked. And this time, Hamish said, yeah, maybe it is. He's been out of the Met for seven years now. He's living in Jamaica where he kind of investigates police shootings and corruption and corrupt police officers. Jamaica's got a big problem with complaints from the public about police brutality and there's a culture within the police over there of shooting. I think that there was just a sufficient amount of space between him and the Met and him and the case that he felt like it was time to talk. He was seen as an old-fashioned copper, a kind of no-nonsense investigator who wouldn't let politics get in the way. So a lot came across his desk, but he was still very much involved in the kind of minutiae of the big investigations. Right to Gareth Williams himself. I think it's time for us, firstly, to have a pen portrait of him and what kind of man he was, and then to take a look at what we know were his last movements and what seems to have happened that day. What kind of guy was Gareth Williams? Gareth grew up in Anglesey in North Wales, where from a very young age he showed a lot of academic talent. You know, spoke to friends of his at his old school and they were struggling with arithmetic. When he had passed GCSE maths at the age of 10, he went to high school a year earlier than his classmates. At the age of 13, this guy had got two A grades, A-level maths and A-level computer science. He was extremely gifted. They say his teachers would put down algebraic problems, the most complex that they could give, and he would solve them using formulaic solutions that they hadn't taught him. He had that kind of brain. He, he was creative in his mathematics. He had an extraordinary talent for maths, and to the point where his teachers, you know, they didn't know what to do with him, really. So they contacted the local university. By the time he was 17, he qualified with a first-class degree, and then he went on to do a PhD at Manchester University. You know, there's this misconception of Gareth as being this kind of ultra-loner who was OCD and didn't have any friends and just stayed at home and studied, when he wasn't really like that. People do describe him as quiet 
I think that he was shyer than most because his classmates were older, more mature. I think that possibly did have an impact on him, but then he had a strong family unit. He had friends that he made at school that he kept all his life, that he kept when he was in the capital, that he still saw and socialised. He just didn't socialise possibly as much as the average person, but that's not to say he didn't have a life. You know, he, he did cycling, he joined clubs. There's caricatures, I think, that exist of him, which the reality isn't quite like that. Because people maybe want to portray him as strange when actually he's just ordinary in a slightly different way. How did he get involved with the intelligence services? When he was at Manchester University doing his PhD in computer sciences, he was talent spotted basically by GCHQ, which is the cyber defence and communications listening post agency for the government. They'd heard about this prodigy. Gareth did well at GCHQ. He got awards for his work. He was thought of very highly, particularly his technical skills, the transference of data and mobile phone analysis and all the kind of techniques that GCHQ used to, to monitor and eavesdrop and all those sorts of things. He was at GCHQ, but he then moves on from GCHQ, does he? Gareth wanted to push on his career and see what else was out there. He liked computer games, he liked manga and that sort of thing. And GCHQ is basically like computer IT nerds, a lot of them. The idea of James Bond is so far removed. But MI6, you get more opportunity to do things in the field. You get more opportunity to do things operationally and things that require more of a skill set than just purely the technical side particularly if you're doing field work. And that's what Gareth wanted to do. He was interested in field work. So that's when he, he moved over a year before he died on a three-year secondment, but he didn't enjoy it. He did not like it at MI6. After a decade at GCHQ in Cheltenham, Gareth moved on, and he hoped up, to MI6 in London, where operations in the field beckoned. He was based in a small office at the MI6's headquarters in Vauxhall. That huge building you see from the river. That's right, the one that James Bond shot out of on a speedboat onto the Thames. He worked in there in a small office with three other people. There were four of them in there. He wasn't sat at his desk nine to five. It was kind of broken up. He was out the office. He was on operations outside of the building. So he wouldn't necessarily be noticed if he hadn't come in for work on a particular day, is what you mean. And then... In August 2010, he's seen for the last time. Can you take us through that? The Black Hat Briefings, a conference in Las Vegas, where it's got all the latest gadgets, listening devices. It's kind of on the fringes of private investigation work. Can I just register some amazement about the idea that MI6 people go to conferences in Las Vegas? The FBI, the, the American intelligence services, they've always got someone at the Black Hat conferences. Gareth was sent to that, and he extended his time in the US with a road trip, so he travelled around a little bit. Then he came back to London, it was August the 11th. He extended his leave, so he didn't go back to work straight away. He was seen in those days doing typical things, really. I mean, he was shopping around Knightsbridge. He was in Harrods buying cakes. He bought a couple of grilled steaks in Waitrose. CCTV picks him up, walking around the day before he died, shopping uh, in the west end of London in a, in a tight red t-shirt and beige trousers and white trainers 
looking like he didn't have a care in the world, really. There's no sign he, he felt like he was at risk or he was being followed or he was anxious. He was doing typical things that he would do. But however he looked, whatever the outward signs were, perhaps he did have a care in the world. He was not enjoying his time at MI6. He felt like there was a bravado culture there. He told his sister that there was this culture of fast cars and heavy drinking, but he didn't like being part of the rat race. You don't earn much money in MI6, unless you're at the very, very top. And even if you are, you're nothing compared to what a typical London banker would be on. Not only that, but you can't tell anybody what you're doing. And you can't tell anyone what you're doing, so where's the fun in that? He'd entered as a graduate at 21, and he'd had two promotions since then. So he's two grades up, he's a grade eight on £40,000. People were going out every night. He only went out twice in his entire year of being there. And he requested a transfer back to GCHQ. So possibly that was maybe playing on his mind. Is he prepared to return? He had one more week left at MI6 before going back to his old job. The last we see of him is after the shopping trip in the West End on August the 15th. We have CCTV, which shows him entering Alderney Street in Pimlico, where he lived in the MI6 rented flats. That's at 3.05pm, and that's the last we see of him. It's not the last we know of him, is it, before he dies? The last we know of his activity came in the early hours of Monday morning. This would have been literally hours before he's due back to his little office, just after one o'clock in the morning on August the 16th. The police found that he'd logged onto a cycling website. That is the last known activity. And then nothing until... So if we go from Monday, August the 16th, 2010, he's due in work. He's supposed to be chairing a meeting with at least two colleagues. Those two colleagues sat there and waited for a couple of hours for him to turn up. He didn't. He was never late. He was a good timekeeper. So it was unusual. But his colleagues in the meeting said, well, sometimes people don't turn up for meetings. You know, we have this idea of MI6 as this mythical beast. Everybody's super efficient, James Bond style. Nothing ever goes wrong. It doesn't work like a normal office. It is a normal office. It's full of normal people. People sometimes don't turn up for meetings. And Gareth didn't turn up for that meeting. There was another meeting later in the week that he was supposed to attend. And he wasn't there either. His line manager spotted that he was missing. It took five days for the alarm to be raised by his line manager, which was heavily criticised during the inquest. It should have been quicker. It seems extraordinary. They realised he wasn't turning up for work, so they say they made a couple of phone calls to him. An officer was sent to knock on the door. Uh, nobody answered. But it took eight days before his family raised the alarm and spoke to GCHQ. GCHQ spoke to MI6. And somewhere in that, the police were contacted. In this documentary made by BBC Wales, you can hear one of Gareth's colleagues eventually reporting him absent and suggesting reasons to worry. I wanted to report uh, one of our members of staff who lives and works in London is missing. Um, you know, with like mental health state or anything like that, if you had any problems that you're aware of. He is going to be coming back to Cheltenham because he's just been pulled back from a job that he is hoping to do. So we're not quite sure how he's taken that news. On Monday afternoon, about five o'clock, a standard patrol officer was radioed. His name was John Gallagher, and he was told to do a welfare check on Gareth Williams. 
He turned up, the door was locked. He had to arrange a lettings agent to let Gallagher into the flat. He walks into the flat. He sees an orange wig on the chair in the living room. He sees SIM cards. He sees a mobile phone on a table in the living room. He goes into the bedroom. There's a duvet that's pushed onto the floor, a bathrobe. And then he goes into the bathroom. And that's where he sees a red North Face Holdall, which is lying in the bathtub. He notices the sides of the North Face Holdall are bulging. He notices a smell. He picks it up. He lifts it five or six inches. It's very heavy. He does lift it slightly and notices a red fluid is seeping out of it down into the bath plug. And he surmises that there is a body inside. So he radios up at the control centre. A detective sergeant is deployed along with several other officers and it's a detective sergeant that cuts into the bag with a knife. And in there they find Gareth Williams' body. We'll have more on what happened next in a moment, but first we report stories like this each and every day in The Times and The Sunday Times. So why not subscribe today and enjoy one month free? Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. So... Back to the flat on that August day in 2010, where the police officer who was making that welfare check found himself bemused, to say the least. When police entered his flat in Pimlico, in the top bathroom they found a red sports bag. Gareth Williams's body was found curled up inside the bag in a fetal position, with no sign of him having struggled to get out. Inside and underneath him was a set of keys for the padlock. Gareth was an officer for MI6 and he was found inside a bag inside the bathtub the padlock was on the outside of the bag through the zippers and the keys to the padlock were inside the bag inside with Gareth underneath his body they found scratch marks near the head 
of the bag, where his head would have been, which they think was Gareth scratching on the inside of the bag with the keys at some point just before he died. It was extraordinary, the fact that it's an MI6 worker made it a significant case for the Met. They had to get in touch with SO15, the counter-terrorism police, because they had to treat it as, have one of our spies been murdered on British soil? SO15 were deployed that night to the flat to look at the crime scene. Now, you've told us that the inquest got to be held in 2012. So let's go through what the investigation showed about his death and what the theories that arose from it were. Before the inquest, you had a police investigation led by Jackie Sieber, who's reporting to Hamish, and there was a third senior officer involved. Mick Broster was a senior detective for SO15, and they had to bring in Mickey, as he was called, by his colleagues, because Jackie on the murder squad did not have the required vetting to interview MI6 officers. So they had to use SO15 as a bridge between the two because counter-terrorism police could go into MI6 and take witness statements. So you had this quite complex structure. It wasn't a straightforward investigation. From the beginning, going into the inquest, Jackie thought Gareth was probably murdered, that he certainly was with somebody when he got into the bag because how on earth did he do it? That bag, that hold-all, so many questions. What they couldn't figure out was how does somebody get into that type of bag in a bathtub, zip it up, lock it from the outside. The padlock was outside, the keys were inside. They didn't find any fingerprints on the bathtub or the bath tiles around it, which Jackie, going into the inquest, thought was suspicious. The critical part was how on earth could he have done it? How did he get into the bag? There was also DNA found on the padlock belonging to somebody that wasn't Gareth. They found DNA on the zipper to the bag. There was DNA found on a green towel that they found in the kitchen. So there were signs around the flat that people had been in there, that they wanted to locate these people. That's why the police thought someone had been with Gareth at the time of his death. And one line of inquiry they pursued involved a Mediterranean couple, whatever that is, seen near the flat in the days before Gareth's death. A line of inquiry pursued, but given up when it led nowhere. He did a lot of work on his private life. He interviewed his landlady and landlord in Cheltenham, Brian and Jennifer Elliott. He lived with them in a bedsit, basically above the garage in their large detached house in Cheltenham, when he worked at GCHQ there, he was a long-term renter. He was there for about 10 years. Police interviewed them. Jennifer and Brian Elliott told them that he was a model tenant, never caused any trouble, never any parties. They never even saw him in all that time bring anybody back to the flat. They certainly never saw him in a relationship with anybody. And then? One evening, they heard Gareth shouting for help. He sounded panicked, he was scared. Brian and Jenny went into his bedroom, and Gareth was tied to the bed. He tied his, his wrists, each wrist, to the bed frame. He basically told them, I can't get free, I can't escape. Jennifer and Brian said, what on earth are you doing? Why would you tie yourself to the bed? And he told them, essentially, that he wanted to see if he could escape. And he hinted that it was something to do with his work. 
Now, what the police investigation found was there was no scenario of a GCHQ worker which would require you to tie yourself to the bed and see if you can escape. So you're left with he was doing that as part of his private life. What the Elliots thought was might have had a sexual motive, but that was the only occurrence that happened that was really unusual. When we say it's the only occurrence, it is fantastically suggestive, isn't it? It does suggest somebody who, for whatever reason, would restrict themselves to see if they could escape. So that takes us back to him being found in the bag. Was there any way, when people looked at it, that he could have done this on his own? They thought it was impossible. At the inquest, they got Peter Folding, who was an expert in confined spaces. He attempted 300 times as part of the evidence that he gave to the inquest to do what Gareth had done, to get inside that bag, zip it up, padlock it from the outside and have the keys in your hand. He could not do it. He got another expert to try the same, an escapologist. He couldn't do it. And what Peter told the inquest was he couldn't say it was impossible, but... I've tried hundreds of times to lock myself inside this bag and couldn't. Even Houdini would have struggled with this one. Someone else must have been involved. It was a crucial key bit of evidence. If the experts were saying this wasn't possible, then you're left with what is possible. There had to be somebody else. So if it was possible for him to do it, then that would have been the more likely scenario. But if it was impossible, there had to be another theory. Since the inquest, has anybody tried to do it? After the inquest, what you saw was several people approaching the Met to say, I've achieved it. And one of them was a retired army veteran and his daughter, who basically proved it. They did a video of it and they contacted Scotland Yard. And in Hamish's view, that made it possible. And that completely changed the police's perspective on the case. The police went back to the coroner and explained the methods that made it possible. Dr Fiona Wilcox took that on board and it's not that it would have completely changed the outcome of her inquest and the narrative verdict that she gave but it certainly would have weakened the case that he had to have been with somebody. David Collins who as we know has followed this case for a number of years even got to talk to GCHQ about it or at least tried to. I'm quite familiar with GCHQ because I got access to GCHQ in Scarborough which is the country's oldest listening post. And I spent a few days interviewing all the GCHQ workers there who were very open, actually. They talked to me about everything from China to monitoring Russia. Incredibly open, but broad brush. But when I brought up Gareth Williams, it was like the shutters went down. It was extraordinary. <laughs> this guy, I remember him leaning over. It was one of the senior spooks and said, we don't go there. We're not going to talk about this. Yeah, exactly. And I think it is an open sore. It's an open wound for GCHQ. One of the aspects of this was the possibility that this was what they call a sexual misadventure. We know that people die from what they call erotic asphyxiation. What was the evidence that there might have been a sexual element in this, whether on his own or with someone else? What Hamish revealed to us, which is significant, that they found semen in the bathroom next to the bathtub where the bag was. Now, that fact did come out at the inquest, but what we didn't know was Scotland Yard's interpretation of that. They believed the semen was probably from the night that he died. 
shortly before he got into the bag. He was very tidy. He's very organised. He's not the sort of person that would leave semen on the bathroom floor. That evidence made the idea of a hit or an assassination by a hostile nation like Russia, it practically made it an impossibility. They all but ruled it out. MI6 were telling them that there was nothing in his work that was dangerous. If he was doing any investigation that compromised Russia in any way, Russia would know that killing one person doesn't stop the work of a government. So they always had huge doubts over why would another nation do it? There's no motive, there's no reason, there's nothing to be achieved from it. And why would you do it like that? It beggars belief. There was no evidence that Scotland Yard found that anybody was behind it. We saw what the Russians did with Litvinenko. We saw what they did with the Skripals. And the attacks were nothing like that. And they had a point. The attack in Salisbury was all about the Kremlin saying, you will not defect from Russia. And if you do, this is what happens. It's a message. There's a purpose behind it. With Gareth Williams, there is no purpose as far as MI6 or Scotland Yard could determine. So with Scotland Yard and the security services ruling out foreign involvement, what are we left with? What was a plausible explanation? He'd visited bondage websites, gone to gay bars and bought tickets to drag shows. Police have revealed new details about the intensely private life of MI6 spy Gareth Williams, who was found dead in his London flat in August. What they were left with was that he engaged in sexual activity either on his own or with somebody and then he got into the bag of his own free will when he did the pathology, the post-mortem. There was no bruises on his body. There was no signs of a struggle. The argument would be if you're conscious, being forced into a bag, there would be an almighty struggle. If you're doing it at gunpoint, why not shoot the person? There's no signs of a struggle in the flat itself. Could you have poisoned somebody or knocked them out before placing them into a bag. That would have come potentially without a struggle. They tested for every poison imaginable that they could think of. They never found anything. There is one possibility, which was chloroform. Could you have put chloroform on a rag or, or a cloth, put it over his mouth? Would that come up in a toxicology report? Hamish's view was that's a grey area. You know, It'd be a lot harder to detect that than a poison. Weren't there some other elements that gave rise to the thought that there was a sexual misadventure element? Without going into the wild world of speculation, that's all a police investigation can do. You look at the solid evidence and you try and connect the dots. They had a witness statement from his old landlady who said he tied himself to a bed when he was with them in Cheltenham. Searches that were discovered on his mobile phone where he is looking at bondage websites and that is something the coroner raised. You know, he's not looking at ways to get into a bag or anything like that, but he is visiting bondage websites on a number of occasions. There was a discovery of £20,000 worth of women's clothing in the flat. £20,000 worth? £20,000 worth. It's designer clothes. 26 or 27 pairs of designer women's shoes. It is extraordinary that somebody on £40,000 a year would have this sort of stuff. He's got women's shoes designed by Christian Louboutin and Christian Dior. Did he have a girlfriend or who they might have belonged to? According to Hamish. They never found evidence that he was in a relationship with a man or a woman. There's been huge speculation over Gareth Williams being a gay man. He'd visit drag shows. 
they had him going to Johnny Wu. Johnny Wu's a famous comedian who does a drag act. They knew he visited one of his shows shortly before he died. He had tickets to go to similar events. He was on a fashion course at Central St. Martin's College that he never told his bosses at MI6 about, actually. He did two courses there, which were in fashion design. The police thought that possibly the purchases were connected to his design course. What they did find was two years' worth of receipts in a cash box in his spare bedroom, which prior to his death, for a two-year period, he was going out to designer shops and buying women's clothes. We have somebody who has an interest in, in women's fashion, in bondage, in tying himself up, and it all created an impression for the police that made it possible that Gareth got into that bag as part of a sexual game that he either played with himself or with somebody else. So in 2013, Scotland Yard said that he probably did die alone and by accident in his flat because he locked himself inside the bag. And now you're talking to Hamish Campbell, who was the chief investigator in the case. What does Hamish now think should happen and why does he think it should happen? On balance, Hamish believes that Gareth was probably alone when he got into the bag. He's returning back to GCHQ early. He possibly views that as a failure, something that he's never had before. He's been a a boy genius who's always achieved academically. MI6 was possibly the first moment where he wasn't achieving. He was taken off a secret mission shortly before he died, and he didn't know how he took that. He was probably quite upset about it. He was probably alone when he did it, whether it was an accident or not, we'll possibly never know. What they can't rule out is that he was with somebody, that he got into the bag consensually. You're not talking about a state hit, you're not talking about Russia or an assassination. This is possibly something that he was doing with somebody else. When the police went into the flat, they found that the lights were on, the heating was switched up. They could potentially be signs that somebody's panicked, left the flat, For whatever reason, they've not managed to get Gareth out of the bag and he's suffocated. And rather than come forward and be implicated in that, they've remained hidden. And some of the clues towards that are the forensics found on the padlock, the DNA on the bag handle, the DNA on the towel. So it's now 2021 and Hamish feels the case could do with another look. You know, as we've seen with Stephen Lawrence, two of his killers were convicted based on forensic evidence which at the time of his death, they could not link to the people involved in his murder. They did years later because forensic science is moving forward all the time. Is it possible in this case to do it? As one of the most experienced detectives in the history of the Met, in his view, it is worth looking at, you know, they can look into DNA structure far deeper than they could in 2010 or even 2013 when the investigation closed. Aside from that, you've also got an expanded DNA database, so you've got at least seven years' worth of profiles that are put upon the national database that you may just get a hit on that you didn't get before. David, do you think it'll happen? The statement they gave me when I approached the Met for a right of reply on Friday last week was... The Metropolitan Police Service fully investigated the death of Gareth Williams, which was also subject to a coroner's inquest. That's the statement they put out. The problem with that statement they have now is that the person who actually did that investigation and the post-inquest review 
is saying that it is worth looking at again with fresh eyes with new forensic techniques so I think they have that quandary I think if this is a normal death a normal suspected murder they'd do it I do think that this is not a normal case so we'll see what happens You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Northern Editor for the Sunday Times, David Collins. And you can read more of David's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Oliver Adamson. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Volkan Kisseltuk. And look, if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or maybe thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.